Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Uh, recorded this week in various locations in New York City and Montreal. Um, uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, PW's twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publisherswiki.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. You can find us on Twitter at at PWComicsWorld. Also, on Facebook and Tumblr at at PWComicsWorld. All right. So this week on Mordecai, we've got a great guest. We're going to be interviewing Peggy Burns, uh, both a longtime friend and um, the publisher of Drawn and Quarterly. Um, uh, really, one of the foremost uh independent comics and graphic novel publishers in North America. Peggy, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Well, I'm very excited to be here. I have to say thank you to you and Heidi because I think it may be for lots of people in the comics industry that during COVID and during shutdown, especially in 2020, I went for the longest walks listening to you guys. <laughs> and it really, it really made me feel like hearing your voices um, just made me feel more connected and not so isolated. So oh, thank Peggy, you. Peggy, that's so, well, we that's, appreciate it. That's so appreciated. That's so gratifying to hear. And, you know, I know doing the podcast helped Calvin and Kate and I also, and yeah. just to, you know, talk, reach out and talk to other humans. And, uh, it's really, it's really great to hear that it, it, it helped other folks in the industry. Um, it also, I, I have a Slack channel at Drawn and Quarterly called Peggy's Podcast Patter, <laughs> where I go over all the podcasts that deal with comics. And oh. it, you know, it, you guys really do like sort things out for us. So, you know, we don't pay that much attention to the diamond issues and the, the big distributor issues, you know, mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Cause it's not like, you know, that much of our business model, but you guys break it down and I'm like, Okay, I figured out what happened with Amazon and comicology. <laughs> Calvin and Heidi broke it down this week. <laughs> well, uh, obviously that's really good to hear hear from you. And uh, this week we're going to get a chance to break down Drawn in Quarterly a little bit. I mean, I gave you a little shout out there with uh, my introduction, but uh, we really want people to uh, to know just the extent that, you know, the books for Drawn in Quarterly have transformed the marketplace. Uh, you have some of the most extraordinary authors, uh, certainly in North America, but they have a global reach. And uh, with that, I'll shut up and let Heidi say a few things. Oh, well, I, I mean, just exactly what Calvin said. And, uh, you know, we recently did the 250th, was it? No, 150th anniversary. I know. We're not as old as the country. Uh, oh, the PW, you, yes. Yes, the PW. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Calvin and I put together a... A uh, little timeline of the graphic ah. novel, and I think we left off some great drawn and quarterly um, moments in there. So you know, when we do the full version of it, we'll definitely have more drawn and quarterly. But but uh, that is absolutely to say that uh, D and Q has been one of the absolute movers and shakers of the graphic novel era um, in comics and in bookstores. And, yes. um, Peggy, of course, you've, you've, you know, took over from Chris Oliveros, the founder of Drawn and Quarterly. And how long ago did you take over as publisher? Um, I mean, we officially announced it in 2015, but I would say it took about two years for it to, you know, for him to fully not come into the office anymore. <laughs> and, um, there you go. You know, he's still the owner, so he does have to come in and sign some things, but he's fully, like, you know, emotionally divested. 
out of the company um, on a day-to-day basis. And the company is run by its long-term employees. So, um, Well, yes. I know, I, Peggy, I interviewed you uh, for the 25th, uh, was mm-hmm. the 25th anniversary. Yes. Um, uh, and, um, I mean, maybe could you give us kind of a quick capsule history of DAQ? Oh, well, Drown and Quarterly is 30 years old, over 30 years old, maybe about 33 years old. It was founded by Chris Oliveros in his apartment in the neighborhood of Mile End, which is a very famous neighborhood here in Montreal. And it was founded in his apartment with him and his wife. Chris wanted to call the company Bleeding Heart, which we still love to tease him about. It was so emo and so goth. And it really could have affected the whole trajectory of Drawn and Quarterly if we were called Bleeding Heart. I mean, who knows, right? And it was his wife, Marino, who was very involved in the early years. And she was the one who came up with the name Drawn and Quarterly. Now, just... Oh, I was going to say, just as a little uh, side note, I did not know the the Bleeding Heart um, <laughs> uh, story. But, you know, there was Black Eye at that time mm-hmm. and High Water. Sure. So there was, you know, Top Shelf. So, so you know, these kind of object-based names were all the rage in indie <laughs> publishers. <laughs> <laughs> and But I do have to say, our name, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful name to have. And so I always thank Marina for dr- naming us Drawn Quarterly because it really <laughs> captures people's attention. <laughs> Yes, and it's classy. And so just like originally, the Chris Chris wanted to be like the New Yorker of comics. He envisioned having a literary comics mm-hmm. magazine coming out quarterly. That never happened. Um, he Chris has the you know pretty much the sharpest editorial eye I think in in indie comics, and I think that's because he is a cartoonist himself. So I do think that's what kind of sets Drawn and Quarterly apart, is that our two editorial visionaries are Chris and Tom, and they come at it with an entirely different different perspective than other publishers do. Um, you know, maybe, you know, Eric Reynolds would be the, you know, another person who is an artist who might, his editorial acumen might be different from someone who doesn't draw and doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, go to the drawing table every day. And so... Um, so Chris lucked, you know, he lucked into, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, becoming friends with Seth, Julie Doucet, and Chester Brown. And as the graphic novel medium morphed and matured, he published some of the first, first books, like The Playboy, and I Never Liked You, and My New York Diary, which I do remember. I remember being at um, Book Expo with Calvin maybe like in 2000, <laughs> 2001, and, and My uh-huh. New York Diary won the Firecracker Award. So, oh yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And you know, and um, and Seth's work, and then you know, Adrian Tomina. We've published him since he was in university mm-hmm. at Berkeley, and he only wanted to be published by Drawn and Quarterly, and we've been publishing him ever since. And so we just really, very quickly, kind of just matured into a book company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, no, I mean. It, Go, go, well, I just wanted to say well, you know, the, the authors that you are scrolling through as you talk here, they have all uh, – I mean they kind of define the last you know 20 years or so um, of, of graphic novel publishing as this medium takes its rightful place um, uh, in, you know, the, in the literary firmament of, of, of the world and particularly in North America and particularly in the U.S. as we still struggle with various – Stereotypes and presumptions about what comics should. Yes, be. but I, I mean, I think Peggy, when you join, I mean, I, 
you know, you had say Adrian Tomine was like one of mm-hmm. the top, uh, your top cartoonists there. And, um, uh, you know, since then, and obviously, you know, he's a brilliant cartoonist and remains a brilliant cartoonist. And, you know, but since then you've done things like, you know, champion Kate Beaton and, and brought back Linda mm-hmm. Barry. That's one of my favorite mm-hmm. things you've done. You know, I love the story of Linda Barry because it really is kind of like a perfect example of how Tom and Chris and I work together. We were, we were in the office. We were just talking about how much we love Ernie Pook's comic. And I was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dancing. You know, she has the one sure. strip talking about babies dancing. And then you're like 13 and you don't look so cute dancing anymore. <laughs> and to me, oh, my God, I was the most awkward 13-year-old. So Linda's comic spoke so much to me. And and Tom got on the on the internet and was like her all our comics are out of print and you know Chris contacted you know mm-hmm. he knows and we were all trying to get in touch with Linda and it really was like just this love in the office and then when we finally got a hold of her you know at that time she wasn't working at the University of Madison she wasn't Linda Berry the great mentor and teacher you know with this you know whole backlist of teaching titles and she wrote to us and she said yeah you can have my backlist no problem but you know, I've got a new book I want published. And Chris and Tom and I said, sure. You know, Chris was like, yeah. she has a new book. And we we're all like, we, we said yes, sight unseen. You know, and then she sent us a big box of legal paper <laughs> with glitter. <laughs> you know, which we He's loved. No we loved and adored. Uh, but, you know, it did like, you know, scanning legal paper with glitter on it. It's not the easiest thing yeah. in the world. So what, then, what year is this? What year is that this? was about 2006. Mm-hmm. So, and um, and it was it. We really tapped in. Like we didn't know that our. We just thought this was like fanboy, fangirl love. Like you know, just people who loved Linda Berry and Ernie Pooks comic. And it we really tapped into something huge. And you know, the fact that we now have four books, you know, from her that are 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 among our bestsellers. And the fact that she just has such a, a a close relationship with her readers and they have such a visceral reaction to her, meeting her, talking to her. I mean, it's just really, really rewarding. Publishing Linda yeah. is one of the most amazing things in my career, hands down. Oh, absolutely. She is truly sure. one of the one of the all-time greats and just yeah, one of the, and one of the all-time most unique people that you will yeah. ever, ever meet. So, uh, you know, prompt well, to that. Yeah, it's interesting with Linda because, you know, it's also like we, you know, published Mimi Pond, who's sort of of the same generation and had sort of reached a certain success as well with The Simpsons. And then, you know, no one ever asked her for a book until Tom met her at Comic-Con and was like, oh, my God, you're Mimi Pond? Like, let's publish (laughs) you. What do you have? And he was like floored and he came back. He's like, I met Mimi Pond and she is so cool and we're going to publish her. And then, you know. Another um, cartoonist from that generation is Barbara Brandon Croft of where I'm coming from. Yes, yeah. And, you right. know, I, I chased her just a few years ago. Like, I really, I chased her down and I was like, I want to publish you. And so that is also a very fun thing when, when you get to, like, just call somebody up and be like, I've had this paperback of yours on my desk and I've been meaning to call you for years and I want to publish you. And she's like, yes, right. let's do it. This is where I'm coming from. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah. I mean, these are really kind of, kind of key, key figures, four mothers. I mean, they really mm-hmm. are, they anticipate 
the world of, the, uh, of graphic novel publishing we're living in today. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, can we for a second just uh, talk a little bit about you? I met oh. you when you were working at DC Comics and talk okay. about a foremother. You were preparing DC Comics in many ways for a world that they weren't completely <laughs> prepared for. The world of the true. book format. It's oh, true. And, it and, is true. And, yes. and, and they weren't they weren't prepared to give you the power that you deserved. Or so it's as I see looking back on this. But you it's were still true. working your magic around books uh and, and when we first met. It's it's true. I mean it was there you know, I started at D C comics in two thousand at the beginning of the graphic novel era, I call it. And, yes, and I was mentored by Paul Levitz, which might be mm-hmm. the reason why you're just talking to me now, because, you know, <laughs> everyone knows that Paul Levitz shies away from the media. And, um, and so I don't usually, you know, go out of my way to talk to press, but, um, I, I, I don't know why somehow <laughs> it came up that I wanted to talk to you guys, maybe just, you know, the more to come podcast, but it was true. It was me and Rich Johnston, Johnson, you know, mm-hmm. at DC comics working and it was just, where the medium was going. No one was really talking about pamphlets anymore. And it was mm-hmm. really about the books. And at DC Comics, I always kind of gravitated towards Karen Berger and the Vertigo Comics. Mm-hmm. For me, it was easier to promote a Neil Gaiman book. Um, you know, it was just always easier for me to do that. But I respected the stunts. I, I always loved it when um, I got called down to the DCU for some sort of stunt that they were, you know, and I, I do have this one like really vivid memory of when they called me down and they're like, we're doing this series. It's called Just Imagine Stan Lee <laughs> recreating the DC universe. And I came what? back up and, and I talked to Will Dennis and I was like, I just was in a weird meeting and I need to run it by a fan. And he was like, yeah, I don't know how this one's going to play yeah. out. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it is fun, and uh, you know, and Stan was a gracious, you know, fun person to work with. You know, so. uh, just uh, for context, though, I, I actually when when I worked at DC, which is a very brief period at Vertigo, we did uh, we worked we, together. Well, yeah, Peggy had the the office next to mine, and you know, I was really pushing graphic novels, and I you was a, I was a little too far ahead of the curve. I, I agree. I was way, in fact, I was way too far ahead of the curve, and I, I did not read I the mean, room. you're Heidi. Heidi, yeah. why the last man McDonald, are no. you? Yeah, well, you but go. let's just say I did not read the room, and, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. I would go into Peggy's office, and we would, uh, we would envision yeah. a future, uh, yeah. that, that we now have, you know, that well, we, yeah. you know, I often tell people that when I left to, you know, left DC Comics, um, and it was partly in what you said, Calvin, that, you know, I didn't think they were giving me the latitude I needed to do to take it to the next level. And, right. you know, it's, it's, a, it was a, it's a corporation, you know, it's a corporate. Yeah. But people yeah. did treat me as like some hippie, like hitchhiking <laughs> up Route 87 to Canada, you know, like go have fun at that, you know, little comic book company. And it is kind of this amazing experience to look back and I, you know, DC, it's not amazing that DC Comics is no longer in New York and it's a shell of what it once was. And every time I turn on Mordecai or PW, there's another round of layoffs. Mm. Um, and that is, that yep. is sad, but it is, it, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And yeah. maybe that's part of the book world too, you know? And even though, uh, I will point out DC was sort of out in front for a mm-hmm. gigantic publisher in that time. 
uh, as far as their embrace of the book format. It was. Um, yeah. there, there were still obstacles, obviously, and obstacles in your path. I don't know whether gender had anything to do with that or not. Just throwing yeah. that out there because we yeah. live in the real world. Yeah. Um, but I, I do remember uh, uh, that you were incredible. I could have helped me, as was Martha Thomas's, I think, who, who yep. predated you. Yep. Uh, and I'll never forget our our meetings in Soho for cocktails. Also, uh, just yeah, want to get that in there. We, all, we always had fun. <laughs> well, we talked it out. Yes, we always had fun. Well, I think at DC Comics, um, I, I came from a, a publicity firm where it was very much like John and Quarterly. It was you know, you mopped, you clean, you you know, if you were having a party that night, you cleaned the bathroom, and you know that's what I'm doing at John and Quarterly right now. And if you have an idea, you just say it. And in a corporation, people have roles and you are not, you know, as a publicist expected to have a marketing idea or even a retailer idea or things like that. And so, and I wouldn't say that's a DC Comics thing. I would say that's just a large corporation thing. So coming to Drawn and Quarterly, I kind of knew that I didn't want to be a publicist forever. I like business. I like editorial. And at Drawn and Quarterly, I get to do all three. So... And a lot, and a lot of other things. <laughs> so, so real quick, could you just tell us a little bit about the, um, you know, the executive structure at DNQ now? It's you and you know, we want to hear about Tom and the, okay. the others you've mentioned. Let's okay, so break it I'm, down for us. Sure, I'm the publisher. <laughs> I run all day to day operations of our company, which fluctuates between 20, 25 and thirty people because we have two bookstores here in Montreal. Oh, the, mm-hmm. the bookstores have about 12 to 14 people, you know, depending on the time of the year. And the publisher has 12 people. As I said, the owner is Chris Oliveros. He stays, he does not interfere. And Tom, Tom is executive editor, but um, he's not editor in chief. And, you know, he's, he wants it that way. And we all want it that way. So he, he gets to do what he wants, but you know, we still have like a very similar structure between me and Tom and Tracy Huron, who is a senior editor, who I don't think gets enough credit in comics for what, mm. who she edits and what she does as an editor. And she's been acquiring books too, and she's been doing an amazing job. And so we, we kind of like, you know, it's kind of like an evil triangle. We run things past each other. You, two people have to want to do the book. And, um, and that's the way it was with Chris, Tom and I, and that's the way it is with Tracy, Tom and I. And, um, so Tracy then oversees three, um, production coordinators or assistant, two assistant editors and one production assistant. And they, with Tom, you know, fill out our production department. And then we have Julia Pulmiranda, who you know, who was my of assistant course. and I mentored her into my former position marketing director and I love Julia she's um I'm her biggest fan I would do anything for that woman she is just so positive and so kind and really is just a wonderful person and a great publicist she's, she's working, an awesome publicist she's yeah, working on a lot of things and yeah. so um and she oversees um an uh, marketing assistant and Kaya and we a new department that's actually come up in the past few years since I've been publisher and it was kind of like one of the things I've been working on is the managing editor position, which is by Allison mm-hmm. Natural Naturel, who's a RISD graduate who 
worked here as an intern in the early years, and she came back and became our managing editor. And so she really is the reason why Ducks is in the warehouse two months before in the pandemic. You know, like oh, she well. is, she has a website with all the trucks, you know, trucking boats around the world. And she really figures out all the printer negotiations and all the shipping negotiations. And she's amazing. And she has yeah. an assistant named Trin who helps them with that. And they actually hey. are re- rehauling our royalty software. And we also uh-huh. overhauled our, our, so one of the things that happened to us in, um, in 2020 was unfortunately our finance director of 14 years called it a day and retired and come cutting Uh it off. So she really was the one who took us back in like 2005, you know, got us from like a million Excel sheets into the, you know, state of the state of the art software for 2005, which of course is not state of the art anymore. (laughs) Anymore. (laughs) But you're on the software. You'd you'd be surprised. At one point, how many publishers aren't on any cut at all? I was going to say, you'd be surprised how many comics companies are using very old software, but yes. So last year, Allison, um, Rebecca Lord, and I spent the whole year upgrading our finances to QuickBooks Online. And as I as I tell people, it's QuickBooks <laughs> Online is really great. I get to see how much money I'm losing in real time. There so you go. Before, it was just like a bunch of smoke and mirrors, you know. I never really knew. But now I know. It's a digital era. But yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, I joke. Um, not and I, I just want to note that book you mentioned, Ducks. We're going to be talking more about it. Sure. It's by Kate Beaton. It's an extraordinary book, an extraordinary memoir. We want to talk. But uh, yeah. it's good to know that it's in the warehouses and ready for yes. people to buy. Acting so, classes yeah. in the warehouse and Birds of Maine. All of our books, our early fall books, are in the yes. warehouse. So. Yes. So Allison has done a tremendous office. job on that. So you know, but let's can we? I'd like to go back just a little bit and okay. um, and you know talk about just what we've been doing for the last three years and what Drawn and Quarterly has been doing for the last three years. I mean. Yeah. I, I mean, we've heard that so many publishers had huge success during the pandemic. And, oh, yeah. And uh, did, was uh, Drawn and Quarterly one of those companies? Oh, yeah. So I do have some sales stats. I think um, the print sales increased 7% in 2020 from 2019, and then they grew again in 13% in 2021. And um, we definitely um, – Linda's books, Adrian's books, they really just like, you know, Mizuki – they went through the roof, like the backlist really, really like flowered. And, you know, it was the, the hard part was introducing new authors, uh, you know, yes. like mm-hmm. Rumi Hara, like we had Rumi Hara's Nori book debuting at TCAF. And then, you know, we have to mm-hmm. debut it online and that, that was tough, but we did have, we were in early 2020, it was like batting down the hatches. Oh my God, we all went home and, you know, there was no marketing expenses. We spent no money. And then mm-hmm. in December, it was almost like, let the good times roll. Oh, my God, who needs a new computer? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, you, you're still working on that iMac from 20, you know, 2003. Let's get you a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and Peggy, because you do own two bookstores, I mean, you know, what was their trajectory? Now, I understand. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think well, that is different. Yeah, that because different. I understand, uh, you know, I was just up there in TCAF. And I don't think us Americans really understand how severe the lockdown was in Canada. Well, it's mostly, um, you know, Canada is just as wide and diverse as the U.S. with a big range of political opinions. Mm-hmm. And so the lockdowns were mostly in Montreal 
and in Toronto. And Montreal got hit first and got hit the hardest and still hit pretty hard with Toronto, um, you know. And our bookstores, we immediately closed on. We had to lay people off, you know, people who wanted to go home. We were like, who wants to go home to, you know, wherever you live? And a lot of people volunteered. And I had a COVID-4. So, you know, even like my bookstore manager had a toddler, so she had to go home So because day t- daycare was closed. And um, our buyer worked from home because his girlfriend has asthma and she, you know, he, she didn't want him in the store. And that makes perfect sense. And so we had four booksellers in the store who pretty much figured out how to sell books online, sell them. You know, luckily we had the publisher behind us. So we knew how to get Canada Post to do a pickup and we knew where to order envelopes Mm -hmm. from and we knew how to do all this. Mm -hmm. But we had four people who worked six days a week and they just figured it out. And, you know, they're amazing. They were, they really did you sell much? Did you sell much online through your own? retail channel before the pandemic well you might remember our old website it was not a great website it was a house of cards we have um we have and then there was even not only was it a house of cards our old website built in (laughs) drupal 7 drupal 7 eventually had a doomsday clock on it where we weren't even able to upgrade it we had to rebuild it even if we were going to stick with Drupal 8 it needed to be rebuilt so we said goodbye okay. to Drupal okay you know i don't like year. you know i would have told you if what you'd said Heidi should we use Drupal i would have like raised the red flags but sure okay you know yeah. you learned the lesson you learned yeah <laughs> So now we have a, we, as of last fall, we have a new wonderful website. So it's not really fair to the old House of Cards website to talk about the sales then. <laughs> Though we well, did you, see, you were we did by see, yourself. We did see a spike in sales on our website, but now yeah. with our new website, we definitely were actually gearing up for a sale this week. It's our first sale yeah. in five mm-hmm. years, mostly because the old website could not handle the traffic. Wow. You know, right. and was a, was a terrible user experience. So, um, well, it just so because on to, online selling became so much more important, you know, over the last two yeah. years than it, than, than, uh, than maybe it was to individual houses before. Anyway, yeah. uh, but and yes, so you, you we, figured that are, out. We are doing our first sale in five years this week, which is, is, mm-hmm. a, is, it, you know, we have overstock just like any company. All of a sudden you look around, and you're like, how much are we paying for, you know, this overstock? So you have to clean it out which is what we're doing. But also it's a sign that we actually have a website that can handle a sale, which is yeah. very nice. <laughs> so, uh, so as, so as things have come out of the, you know, well, we're, I mean, we're far from out of the pandemic. We're going through wave five or six, whatever it is now. But, um, you know, yeah. I mean, how have, how is 2022 shaping up? I, I mean, we're seeing overall in, you know, all these stories come out about, Hey, bookstores sales are still surprisingly strong. I know. And uh, is it still looking good? Well, our bookstores are really doing better than ever. And the bookstores are really interesting. You know, another thing that came out of Tom and Chris and I working together in that Chris, Tom and I moved here and we just wanted the latest McSweeney's, you know, <laughs> right. like that's all we wanted. Right, right, right. And we wanted, you know, the local English comic book shop didn't carry Jordan Crane. So we wanted, you know, we wanted Jordan Crane, you know, and things like that. And so um, we opened our own bookstore and we didn't really understand, like, there were no English bookstores at the time that we opened. And we are in a very artsy neighborhood and that really just embraced us. And us with along with another French store, um, La Porte de Tete, 
we kind of sparked a whole retailing renaissance here in Montreal. And now there's many, many independent bookstores in French and English, and it's really wonderful. But people really love our bookstore, and it's very funny to hear people's opinions because, to me, it's still Drawn and Quarterly Bookstore. We have this bookstore to sell our books. Yes, we have become the biggest English bookstore in Quebec, independent bookstore, but Interesting. it is there to sell comics and graphic novels. But, you know, someone will be like, oh, I love your bookstore. You're the best queer bookstore. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. I'll I'll get with that. You know, or they're like, oh, your poetry section. Your poetry section is just amazing, you know. Or like I said before, Lauren Groff was here this weekend, and she came to our bookstore. And we've had these amazing events, you know, with so many different authors over the years. So with Margaret Atwood and Neil Gaiman and people like that. So it's been a very fun and hard experience running a bookstore. I joke that every publisher should want a bookstore. Read book retailing is the hardest skill in publishing. It should never be discounted. It should never be taken for granted. Retailers deserve our utmost respect. It is very, very hard. The margins are very slim. And especially in today's world where everything is so expensive. And, of course, you got to pay your, your staff good money because or else they're not going to be able to live in Montreal or anywhere, really. Yeah. And it's just – it's it keeps – it's kind of like running a restaurant. Like if you take your eye off it for a second, you come back and you're like, what the hell just happened? You know, And that doesn't really yeah. happen on the publishing side as much. Yeah. You know, I hear you. By the way, can we point out that that Tom Tom Devlin is also your husband? Yes, Tom Devlin and yeah, I okay. met at, <laughs> met at Comic Con in two thousand one. <laughs> so then, when I say it was a hard decision to not go to Comic Con, I am very sincere in that. And um, but as you know, the thing about I can't, you know. There's all of us at Drone and Quarterly are going to be here. We like to think for the long haul. And we asked ourselves, can we go to Comic-Con every single year for till we retire? And for us, that means somebody's got to show up on Monday to meet the skid in Tuesday to hang out with the Teamsters, you know, and we're all women except for Tom. And, you know, it's like, that's not that fun hanging out in a, you know, <laughs> In a convention hall with no carpeting yet and no AC and with have, a lot of men. And you have you know? to wear, like, you know, shoes and a hat and all this stuff. Like, exactly. You know. And so, you know, in the modern world, I mean, Comic-Con is a hard show. I think if maybe if it was a shorter show, we might not have cut it off. You know, we might not have mm-hmm. said no. But it is interesting that with the conventions. You guys know me that I've been trimming the conventions for a few years now. Mostly because I have my staff. My staff is here. It's not New York or Toronto where people mm-hmm. come in and out and, you know, we'll do the shows and then go leave for a new position. This is who we have on staff. And we kind of can't do the shows as well as do a spring tour season and a fall tour mm-hmm. season and do ALA and do AWP and do all these other shows. And I joke, like, our, you know, our team of 12 is, like, the library marketing department at a multinational, an academic <laughs> marketing department at a multinational, the retail relations, yeah. you know, the editorial. That's us. Every department is just us. <laughs> well, and I can imagine, obviously, crossing the border in these days and times, multiple times, that's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, it was never very fun. We had one yeah. assistant who's now our cartoonist, Rebecca um, Rosen, who um, got stopped once with Ed the Happy Happy Clown? So it's never been that easy to cross the yes. border. With our 
I hear you. All right. Um. Uh. Great. So, where do you see? And maybe this is too broad a question. I mean, the graphic novel marketplace now, it just seems to be, I mean, while it seems to be driven by um, uh, children and YA book titles, Mm -hmm. uh, the adult market is growing too. And Mm -hmm. certainly uh, DNQ represents that um, Mm -hmm. at its highest level. I mean, you guys have one acclaimed author after another. So, yeah, what, what, how's it look? My, my thoughts on this is like every day I find it so fascinating and exciting and in, inspiring to be in a industry where drawn and quarterly and fanographics are the tastemakers and we are competitive with multinational companies and we, you know, and that our big authors, like the authors that you just referenced, they stay with us because they care about the medium and they are like, well, I'd rather be with Journal Quarterly because, you know, one, I know they'll do a good job or Fanographics and, you know, they'll promote my book. But also they kind of know that you, they want to read those smaller idiosyncratic cartoonists that no New York City house would ever touch with a 10 foot pole. And, you know, and they want those artists to make a living too. And they know in order for that to happen, the publisher behind it has to be extremely healthy and has to have a range of cartoonists. So I find it very exciting. I don't think there's any other industry like this where two independent companies really lead the way and and are the ones who, who, you know, pretty much, you know, ushered in the medium and the business model and and are still doing it 30 years. And, you know, the big guys are still trying to figure out, like, what, like, what is our editorial eye and what, you know, how do they do it, you know, because a lot of our books, you know, I don't think other, you know, a traditional editor would get the magic. Well, one, you know? one, uh, one creator that certainly fits into that is Nick Donasso. Exactly. And, um, you know, his book, I was Sabrina, I believe, right? Had, uh, yes. it was nominated for, now the Booker. I'm, the Booker Award, the, the Man yeah. Booker, Booker Award, which yeah. is, uh, it's in, the first, the first was, graphic novel. Yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. it was very, very groundbreaking and prestigious. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know who else would have, would have done that, that book exactly. because he, you know, his work is definitely, uh, accessible, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, like Thomas Pynchon is accessible sometimes. Yeah, that's a perfect example. I totally agree. And that's why I think, you know, to have editors like Tracy and Tom and myself and Chris, you know, Eric and Gary and Jack, you know, like we look at comics in a totally different light. And I, I love that. I, I kind of like that. It's this language that you don't need decades and a lifetime of nostalgia. It helps sometimes, sometimes that hinders. You just really have to really like comics and understand the, you know, the defining line from, you know, underground cartoonist to, to Linda Berry to Raina Telgemeier. Like there's a line running through there. It might not be very apparent, but it's there. I, one thing I, I just would, would love to point out is this, that uh, it, you have – Drawn and Quarterly and Fantagraphics really mm-hmm. have been very key in in the medium's uh, um, transition to the, to the book format. I mean mm-hmm. you guys were very early on to get really credible – Book distribution, mm-hmm. uh, both through FSG and mm-hmm. um, I think Fantagraphics is uses Norton. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I always thought that this these this were key moments in, in in our Absolutely. media and in the business I, side. So when I came to Drown and Quarterly, we were published by Chronicle Books. And Chronicle Books is a great publisher, but they're mostly gift books and they're mostly design books. Mm -hmm. So I remember going out to sell our books and I was like, well, this is Joe Sacco and it's the Bosnian War. And, you know, and <laughs> yes. like they had just sold a million copies of this book called Dogya, which is dogs doing yoga. And I, and I came back and, they were, and I said to Chris, I was like, I don't think they're the right distributor for us. And he said, well, who would you, who would you, um, go after or ask. And I was like, well, I would, I'll ask FSG. I'll send them a letter today. And I sent them a big package and it was, you know, kind of arrogant of me, I think, to think. And I remember having a meeting with a, and Jonathan Glassy, Glassy asked me like, why did you approach us? And I said, well, my cartoonists are the comics equivalent of your authors. Mm. Great. Um, nice. a great <laughs> description. Yeah. You know, you know, no messing around. No. I'm right. And to his credit, same level. To his credit, he agreed. So, um, but we have um our contact there who over, you know, who shepherds us and um sells our books is Spencer Lee and he's amazing and he's been looking out for us for like 15 years and I always send him gushy emails about like what a difference he's made in the life of our cartoonists. Yeah. And I, I think you told me once that that was it Agent told me these shortcomings that kind of put you over the top at one point because the book sold so well it kind of put the well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned Sabrina and that was perhaps our last big, uh, you know, big blockbuster book that, you know, really mm -hmm. a, a book like Shortcomings, a book like Ping Yang Yang, that was maybe our first hit with mm -hmm. FSG. They read that and they said, this is the book. We're going to get this in everywhere. And they sold like maybe 2000 copies to Borders at the time. And that was a huge deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, these books are and I think in that time we had what it is. And we had shortcomings. And we had Pinyong Yang. And we had some other books. And having all of those books together was sure. what propelled us to the next level. You know, you're always kind of looking for. You know, I'm always joking that I was like, "Where's our Persepolis?" So I can be like L'Association. You know, like you really do need these these perennials that just keep selling and you know make it not such a guessing game. What do you? Yeah. Well, what do you? What it? What would you say is? Uh... You know, drawn a quarterly's like, you know, what is your Persepolis? What's your biggest book over time? Um, I think it, it's pretty much either, it's all women. Mm -hmm. So it's either Moomin Volume 1, Hark uh -huh. a Vagrant by uh, Kate, by Kate or, or a, any of the Linda books, mm -hmm. syllabus, movie mm -hmm. comics, or what it is. Um, uh -huh. those are usually, and then, um, those are up there. Those definitely are the ones that sell and sell and sell along with shortcomings. Mm, mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh, so. Well, they're all amazing. So yes. And uh, I, know, you know, I think that's it's kind of funny because it's, I don't think people in comics know that drawn and Corley's best-selling books are all by women. I don't think people <laughs> in comics know that out they of may 30, overlook it. out of 30 <laughs> employees, there's Chris Oliveros and Tom mm. Devlin as the only dudes on staff, you know, like, <laughs> I think what we're doing here is pretty special, and I don't think there it can't be found in traditional publishing, and it can't be found in comics publishing. And we wake up every day so determined to make this work, to come up with a sustainable business model. And you know, I think you know, back in the '80s and the '90s, having a benevolent 
a benevolent publisher was fine. You know, you're like everyone wants, you know, a lovable, charitable, <laughs> non non profitable publisher, right? <laughs> yes. But the world is the world is too expensive now. You know, so we have to kind of make this work for our authors. We have to have this work for our employees. Tom and I, neither one of us are in tech or have tenure. So we've got to make this work. So there's kind of like, you know, we do feel a very deep seated responsibility in making a business model work at Toronto Quarterly. So, you know, another um, aspect of what you do there that we have not touched on is uh, your whole manga line. And, oh, yeah. you know, uh, you publish, uh, I mean, it's what's generally thought of as Gekika, Gekika right. manga, which is like for adults, but, um, yeah. you know, you have an incredible lineup of manga. I mean, how, you know, we, we know that anime and manga also have just soared and soared during, uh, the pandemic. Well, one of our bestsellers, Mizuki has been our bestseller, mm-hmm. definitely, mm-hmm. like, and it just, Shigeru Mizuki, yeah, yes. Yeah, history of Japan. But uh, also toward our noble deaths. I mean, right. But great class. the funny thing about the manga is that you know, I you know, Tatsumi, I adore yes. him. Oh, and yeah. we, yes, we oh, spent, yes, we spent a lot of time together. Like, there's not many drawn and quarterly cartoonists that I spent a week with in LA, you know, or I spent a week with in Toronto or New York. But I spent it with Yoshihiro um, Tatsumi-san, and I adore him. And we published many people. Um, from Japan over the years, but they were all men. So, but we don't speak Japanese. So it's basically finding the translators, finding the gatekeepers who will bring us back the female cartoonists. And last year we published The Sky is Blue with a Single Cloud, Kuniko Tusurita. And, um, and this book did really, really well. Um, uh, it sold out of its first printing and it was featured in the Atlantic and it really just just skyrocketed and then our new book this week is talk to my back by yamada murasaki and this book is is just like it's a comic book about domesticity about being a wife about being a mom and about being a it's just fascinating i i love this book i did and i kind of feel like that's the maturation of the of our manga line you know is is that you know we were publishing all the men, and now we're getting to the women. But also, we after publishing so many cartoonists from Japan, we're like, okay, well, we've got Japan covered. We need some other countries from Asia. Like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. So well, now you- we're. I'm very proud of our our Korean line. Yes. We're the only. We are the oh, only yes, publisher. Absolutely. We're the only publisher in North America to be to be translating. This is something. I acquired the first book, um, uncomfortably happily, and Tracy edited it. And Tracy took the whole line. And the first book was translated by Helen Joe, who did not want to do it again. She's like, I'm not a translator. And if you've read Uncomfortably Happily, it's all about artists missing deadlines. So <laughs> Helen Joe, God bless her, God bless her, was like, this was too close to home. Can't do it. And Tracy's like, I want to publish um, cartoonists from Korea. So she found Janet Hong. Um, I think mm-hmm. through, she just wrote Grey Wolf and said, who, who would you recommend? And they suggested Janet. And Tracy has done a tremendous, tremendous job, um, with our Korean cartoonist. She was just in Korean, Korea at the Seoul Book Festival. And that's been a really rewarding experience. And Tom acquired, uh, cartoonists from China. So it's fun to like, okay, we did this, but let's make it bigger. How can we, you know, let's not just rest on those laurels. Let's, you know, try and be more inclusive and 
and think on a wider platform. And uh, Kim, so, uh, Gentry Kim, the, the author of Grass, yeah. also mm-hmm. another extraordinary book. So, mm-hmm. yes, go ahead, Heidi. Oh, I was just going to say that that does lead me to um, another question that I had, and you, that goes back to what you were saying about going to shows or not going to shows. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's pretty much universally been recognized that during the pandemic, one of the hardest things for all publishers was to break a new author. And, um, you know, I mean, going to a show is, uh, definitely one of the ways that you, you know, break, you know, they make a splash, a book debuts and makes a splash. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I mean, how do you, how do you see that now? How do you see the mechanism of breaking new authors? I totally agree that you can break, like I said, like we had Rumi Hara all set to debut at TCAF. But, you know, when we stopped doing TCAF a few years ago, we didn't, we weren't irresponsible about it. We, we tracked our sales in Toronto to make sure that we weren't losing money. And a year later, our sales had increased in Toronto accounts by what we were making at TCAF and more. And so, you know, we, it is, it's not as essential for Drawn and Quarterly to be at a show because we do a full marketing plan. We put, and I think everyone knows this, and this is not a secret, that we market and publicize our books and we put in, we only publish 24 books a year because we want to put 100% into each book. So I'm very proud of our marketing team. They turned it right around in 2020 and they were the first ones to start doing um, online um Sorry about that. Online um, events, and and now we some of them stuck. So now we have an at home that we still do. That um, that when a book debuts, an author speaks from home, from in their studio, okay. and um, we still do that. And we have an event series that Luke Pearson, you know, did it from the UK, and um, it worked really well, and we kept it. And so. I don't think we need to be there. Um, I think these shows, you know, we're a multi-million dollar business. To For us to be at these shows next to these micro-publishers, I don't know if it's if it's right. Like, I think it's their space. I think they need to be there. I think they need the sales. And, you know, if the mm-hmm. festival wants to invite one of our cartoonists and host the signings themselves so that it, it benefits the festival... I think that's that's a probably a more ethical way to to do these small press shows. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Interesting, but you, yeah. But you are still. I mean, I, 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 you know, I mentioned. You know, I have to do a timeout. I keep hearing this echo. Are you hearing that echo, Calvin? Yeah, I am hearing it. I, I don't know what to do about it. So, Is um, it, I think it might be Peggy. I was I was echoing a little bit too, but it seems to have stopped. Okay, I don't hear any echoes. You okay. don't. Okay. See, it might not be on the. It might not be yeah, on the final recording. Not. Okay. So, uh, yeah. all right, little silence, Kate. You're gonna have to cut that part out. Sorry. That's all right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're uh, telling our producer yeah. to cut so, stuff out. Yeah. Uh, so, Kate. Uh, so, sorry. So, Peggy. Um, but you are still going to so many other shows like ALA. I mean, I think ALA has really become the big show that so many. I, you know, I have to say, I don't think we're going to do ALA anymore. I oh. think we're just going to do it via Macmillan. Um, ALA. This is the American Library Association meeting. For Quebecers. For people in Quebec, ALA falls on a very terrible weekend for us. It's between our big Quebec holiday and it's between Canada Day. And it's like the one week no one in Quebec works. <laughs> but I do think 
Um, it's expensive. It's a very, very, very expensive show to do. ALA charges multinationals and independents the same rate, which I don't really think is fair. And, um, and you can, you can market to librarians online. Like you can, you can spend more money via Edelweiss and NetGalley and have more librarians be able to actually read the book than pick up a bookmark or a catalog. And, but we do like ALA. We love librarians. Like you come sure. back from ALA and it's like a feel good. Like you've just been at a yoga retreat. Like it's just, <laughs> I always joke that at a comic con, um, you're trapped behind your booth and everyone's like, you know what you're doing wrong? You know what you're doing wrong? You know what I would do if I were you? And then you're at a library show and the librarians are just like, I love what you do. Everything you do is great. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Librarians do yeah. love to accentuate the positive. Thank wow. You. Mind Thank blown. You. Hey, 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 I'm going to jump here because we're, our time is running down. Okay. Uh, but I, I do want to... Uh, you you talked about ducks. What what are the big books in twenty twenty two? Kate Beaton's ducks okay. most certainly will be one of them. It's our biggest print run ever. We're printing fifty thousand copies. They are all in the warehouses. They're at our store to be ready to be sold in September. Um, and right behind it, not too far behind it, is acting class. And it's pretty yes. pretty thrilling to come this far with these two cartoonists. They they work very differently, Nick. Nick just works by himself. There's no editorial. Sometimes he'll reach out to Tracy and ask for her opinion, but there's nothing else. Whereas Kate was a different editorial process. Um, you knew that she really had this story inside her, and she really, really wanted to um, to get it out. I mean, ever since I met Kate, she would talk about her time at the oil sands. Wow. And, you know, you'd see her sketch these things on Tumblr. But Kate was a comic strip artist. Like, she was a joke cartoonist. And she had to change it to a, um, you know, long-form storytelling. And it kind of reminds me, the only person I've really seen push themselves like that was Adrian with shortcomings when Adrian decided mm-hmm. I'm going to write a graphic novel and it's going to be long form and I have to, I'm going to sit down and figure this out. That's the exact same thing that Kate did. She's like, I've got the story to tell and I have to, I have to tell it in a long story. It doesn't come that easy. And you really, I was very happy to be the editor on the book along with Tracy Heron because it does actually really need someone who understands the comics language to edit these, that kind of story, I feel like in the hands of a traditional editor, it would be very um, narrated, right? Mm. It would just be like narrated, narrated. And Kate didn't want that. So it was, I think the neatest thing about both ducks in acting class is the restraint that each cartoonist shows. And that could maybe be like, um, except for Linda Berry, like restraint might be like the, the defining <laughs> yeah. adjective of a lot of drawn and quarterly cartoons. <laughs> yeah. For, for the, for the re- our listeners who may not know, this is the story of her time working, you know, trying to pay off her school debts, working in the oil fields of, of, of Canada in this, you know, almost dystopian world of, of overwhelmingly men, workers, um, mm-hmm. and her experiences. It's just an extraordinary tale. I mean, I think what's what's interesting about Ducks is the generosity and the love that Kate still has for all the people in the book. She she really views everyone as kind of a victim of circumstance and no one's to blame except the oil companies. Really, you know, Mm -hmm. um, 
you put all these people out there in a tent and, you know, and you don't give them any resources, it's, it's not going to end well. And, but her humor shines through, you know, her yes. humor shines through and, and her love and it's, and her passion for her homeland and her, her, and like just the way, like the snippets of Cape Breton, which I'm going to this summer to visit her, which I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. As Kate says, I've seen the beach that she drew a million times mm-hmm. in ducks. Now I get to go see it in person. Nice. nice. Cool. And so it's, it was, it was a very rewarding experience working on ducks with Kate. It was, it's, it, it went through a lot of iterations mm-hmm. and she finally got it in the end to where she wanted it to be. So. Well, I've read it. Everyone and, should uh, read it. And did you like it? I loved it. I yes. loved it. Uh, yeah. Really, it's, it's a, it's a really a book for our time. Uh, not only, uh, in the story it tells about women, but the story it tells, I, as you said it, her, um, her generosity, mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, to everyone involved. And I think also, uh, how it touches on the environment, mm-hmm. uh, and her experience as an artist going, as you said, from a strip artist to this, mm-hmm. to changing her style to accommodate a different kind of storytelling. Right. She also wanted to make sure it wasn't a very long book. I mean, it's 400 pages. It's long. And so she's like, I don't want a thousand page book. I don't want much narration. She knew what she didn't want. We had to kind of work towards to what she did want, which was harder to describe. But in the end, she got the book that she dreamt of. Well, and that's great. It's interesting that you mentioned narration because I, I, you know, comics are such a fantastic format for autobiography. And, and there are a lot that is the caption format. You know, it's like, a, and, you know, later on, I moved to Columbus and, you know, there's a, there's a panel of somebody driving and then a sign that says, welcome to Columbus. I mean, you know, and that's fine. Those stories are right. absolutely fine. And, you know, Kate mm-hmm. really wanted to show and immerse mm-hmm. you, which makes it more immersive. Uh, oh, I mean, narr- narr- there's nothing wrong with narration. Yeah. Linda Berry's the best at Absolutely. it, you know. Yes, so, yes. But you know, there is there is the very textbook memoir that's you know. Mm-hmm. I think this story could have been told a very different way. I am the only woman in the room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah. it wouldn't yeah. be the book that it no. is. No, not yeah. at all. <laughs> Well, um, anything else you want to uh, uh, showcase uh, as a for big books? This has also obviously been a yeah. big year for Julie big, Doucet. Oh well, yes. I mean, I think Julie Doucet just kind of like, you know, it's different being here in Quebec too, right? To like Julie, we had lunch after she came back winning the big award, and she said, "I kind of feel like I won it for North America. <laughs> I won it for Quebec." And I want it for Canada, and I really want it for woman for women. Yeah, there you and go. It was just like women around the world saying, "No, this this is who represents us." And you know, seriously, too much has been made about Julie quitting comics. She never quit art. She never yeah. quit storytelling. She was still doing it. You know, as we as everyone who knows what we publish, we've been publishing books by her along. And there's something like she quit comics a little. Like, is that because? She's a woman, you know, there's many, there's many men who might have not made comics in the same time period, and it's not like they quit comics. So it was just great to see her get the recognition she deserved, and, um, 
she said that she got bumped up on the flight to first class on the way home. <laughs> well, there you go. Nice. Of, you you win the grand prix at Angoulême, and you know the, <laughs> yeah. the, the world. And I was like, really? Yeah. You think? She's like, I think, yeah, I think they they bumped me up, and I was like, they can do that. <laughs> There you go. But the one, the one book that's close to our heart that's coming out this fall is this mammoth book, Jean-Vierre Castre, The Complete Works. Oh, yes. Um, edited by her husband, Phil, in 1981 mm-hmm. to 2016. Susceptible is in here. All her short stories, all of her poetry, some communication, some photos. I mean, it's just, it's huge. It's expensive, but it's, you won't ever <laughs> need anything else. It's heartbreaking. Um, Phil Elvorum, you know, he loves her and he, 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 this is a tribute to her and it's, it's very hard. I will, I'll stop talking about it cause you know, you start crying after a bit yeah. and you start, you know, talking about it. But sure. there's a, that's, I mean, that's what's interesting about John O'Quarley. I kind of always laugh when people like, you know, oh, I mean, like, there's a typical drawn and quarterly book, and I'm like, what's the typical drawn and <laughs> do tell, tell me what it is, because I don't know what it is. And we always publish new cartoonists, but we we still work with the cartoonists that we've been working with. And that's the amazing thing about Julie is that she was our first cartoonist. It was funny. I think about four years ago, she came to the office, and Chris was well well retired. He wasn't in the office, and she came in, and she just kept laughing. And I was introducing her to everybody. I was like, Julie, why are you laughing? She was just like, there's just so many women here. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I'll take it. That's a compliment. (laughs) That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, it has. um, We have an amazing staff. Well, um, well, uh, Heidi, uh, uh, you know, I, any more questions? I think, I think we're just about out of time. I mean, obviously we could sit and dish yeah, with, yeah. with Peggy for, you know, I for know, a long hours. time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I will say Peggy was really, I, I did go to TCAF. We got to hang out with you. Oh, and, it was amazing. And we, and we got also to have, you know, you and me, Karen Green and Ivanka Hahnenberger. We got to have like a, you know, and a lady, Tom. lady and Tom. And Tom yeah. Yes. But we did have the lady, yeah, kind of like a lady we summit we there. Did. We had a little lady yes, summit. We did. And there that you was, go. That was really awesome, and um, uh, yes. you know, it's it's. Well, that's the thing is, I don't want to go to Comic Con behind the booth anymore. I, I joke, I was like, I want to be Chip Chip Kid and Charlie Cochman <laughs> walking around in my fancy clothing. <laughs> Yeah. Not breaking a sweat and hauling ass yeah, behind well, the booth. <laughs> well, you two, you, you two go. are at that point. I'll, I'll be there next, believe me, after if I survive this Comic Con. So. Yeah, when we, yeah. Calvin and I go back, Calvin's going to be in like a suit. I'm going to be in like a suit. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know so. about that, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 I'm going to try and, well, I'll figure a way to hook up with you. We, we, we have to have a, uh, you know, well, uh, a cocktail. I mean, yes, that's the nice thing about go. not doing shows is that you actually can, like, I was like, I want to go to New York in the fall, and I want to see Heidi, and I want to see Calvin, I want to see Adrian, and I want to see Sarah, you know, like, I want to see all these people, and not be, not be chained to a booth, so that would be great. All right. So well, thank you, We're, we're going to make that happen. Yeah. We're going to make that happen. Just like we made this talk happen. Finally. Thank so, you. Really. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, much Peggy. I know. Yeah, well, thank you, you so much I for mean, being on More to Come. I love More to Come. My favorite <laughs> podcast. So, thanks guys. And thank you, Kate. You weren't here, but thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> there you go. She'll hear this, of course, as exactly. she goes. Exactly. And there will be more to come.